You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. I want to invite you now to Psalm 119, and we'll pick up where we've left off over the last couple of weeks, and we will pick out four more stanzas in this poem this acrostic song of glory to God for his word and his character. And so as we make our way there, you'll find in the middle of the Bible, maybe in the seat in front of you or underneath you, the Psalms. And in the, in the, toward the latter third of the Psalms, all 150 of them, you'll find Psalm 119. It is the longest psalm in the, the collection of Psalms, but it's also the longest a chapter in the entirety of the Bible. As I shared with you, it's like the, the massive long song, right, of, of all time. It's like, it's like the, uh, the free bird of the Bible, right? It's like the, the November rain, the in Inagata de Vida, right? Like this is the long, you know, this is the really long song, the, the Bohemian Rhapsody, the, the full version of what, of all along the watchtower, right? It's, it's long, and it's as if to say it's epic. There's something epic and memorable that we're meant to celebrate and recall here. And that, that long and, and elaborate and epic song we find here is a hymn to God's Word. That is that we celebrate that God is not up there and out there, but God has crossed eternity and time and space to introduce Himself to us. The God of the universe, the Creator of all that is, is mindful of us, that He would speak to us. And this is the mystery that we declare as Christians, that the most definitive word that has been spoken to you and to me is a word spoken in Jesus Christ. The Gospel of John begins with this meditation that the word was in the beginning, and and in the beginning there was nothing that was made apart from the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. And that word we find came flesh to be Jesus Christ. And the word that God speaks over eternity from the beginning of time and to the end of time is not a word of destruction or condemnation. It is a word of grace. It is a word of mercy. It is a word of invitation back to our Creator. And so as we reflect upon Psalm 119, I want to, over the next couple of weeks even, ruminate on good reasons why I think this can be a part of our lives. But as I share with you three challenges, one over the last two weeks, remember, was to read a stanza every single day. Every day, begin your day or, or sometime in the day, a stanza. That is one of the eight verses that we find here of the, that they all begin with the, a letter of the 22 letters or figures of the Hebrew alphabet. The second thing is that you memorize a particular verse Right? Because this is what it says. We're going to meditate. We're going to ruminate. We, you can't meditate or ruminate on things without committing them to memory. And so every single week, I want you to pick a verse out of the, out of the section from the, from the preaching and the teaching, and I want you to memorize it. And then the third thing we saw is that since Christ is the fullest fulfillment of God's Word, when we do this, when we read another piece of Scripture, we let this set our sights to find Christ as the center and the fullness, fulfillment, fullness of fulfillment of God's Word. So those are the three things. If you haven't done it yet, I want to invite you into this. This is what we're doing as a, as a church for a season. I'm inviting you to those three things, to, to, to read uh, and begin or end each day with eight verses that ruminate upon God's Word and, then, and the trustworthiness, the faithfulness of God's Word to us in Christ. Second, memorize or commit at least one verse to Scripture over that particular week. And then thirdly, read some other passage, even if it's a verse, in light of what you've meditated upon such that you begin to see the glory of Jesus through it. 
As I share with you, this might be one of the most boring sermon series I preach, but it could be the most life-changing as you commit to what we find here, the daily meditation upon, the daily walking by God's word for you and for me. So we've gone through seven, I believe, letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And so now we're going to, to pick up where he has, where we've left off. We've, uh, we're going to pick up there and... This could be bad. I know, I know. Pray amongst yourselves. There it goes. Ugh. Depend on technology. That's a, that's, as a reminder, we, we depend on God's word, not on technology. Selah. All right. <laughs> so we'll find ourselves in the eighth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Remember I told you to, you can memorize even the Hebrew alphabet. I've got a whole graduate degree by memorizing other languages and by songs. And, and so we will be in Het, Tet, Yod, and Kaf, the, these four letters that I'll read beginning in verse 57, and then we'll wrap up after we read all four of those together at the end of verse 88, reflecting on the fullness and sufficiency of God and His Word to us in Christ. So beginning in verse 57, the Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now... I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live. For your law is my delight. Let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you turn to me that they may know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes that I, might not, that I may not be put to shame. 
My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end of me on earth. But I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. My prayer is that this becomes more than just a ink on a page or recitation, but instead it becomes the very words of God for you and for me that give us life, that give us delight, that are our, our portion. The Psalms are the prayer book of Jesus, according to some commentarians and authors. They're the poems. They're, in fact, the most recited parts of Scripture that Jesus ever rehearses. He, he says them in many different cases. And so the Psalms were, in this case, the, the songs that you and I, for example, sing and, and rehearse. And, and we declare together every week about the goodness and greatness of God. And, and so for us to think upon the Psalms is to reflect on the poetic language of the people who are walking according to God's promise. And this Psalm, the 119th Psalm, is, is a love song, if you will, about God's Word. Quite literally, he even says the law of God. That would have been a reference to the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. But in this case, this song isn't just simply uh, about the content of the Bible or Scripture, or even the content of the law or the Torah. But instead, it's also a prayerful search for refuge in God's instruction in the midst of a hostile and threatening environment. And so also, for us, it's an invitation to love the Scriptures and love to hear from God Himself. Not just for the purpose of assimilation of content. We don't open this Bible weekly. We don't sing its words together and, and reflect upon it and submit to its teaching just for the assimilation of content. We don't sit under this and open this Bible together just so that we, we have another wrinkle in our brain. But instead, this is about longing for refuge in God's instruction and will for us in Christ. In the middle of a chaotic and threatening world. And three times the steadfast love of God is mentioned in these four stanzas. Verse 64, 76, and 88. And so we're meant to have a picture here in these four stanzas that move sequentially from one thought to the next about the love of God, the goodness of God, and how then His own steadfast love captivates our own hearts. It becomes our delight, our portion. It becomes the thing that, as we see in verse 58, we seek with all our hearts. It's one of the first things in this first letter and this stanza we're invited to consider is that we will surrender to and to serve that which captivates our hearts. 
Now, you may not think of yourself as a servant to that which you love, but I assure you the people around you who love you can point out the things you love. They know it. They just watched you closely. And to watch you closely would reveal what you love and a sense in which how you, and this is why we use like strange language, right? We fall in love, right? It's as if like, ooh, ooh, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't stop myself. I just fell. Gravity took over, right? And it's powerful language to say that not only is love an act of the will, but love is something that actually takes us over. And so we even say things like we've fallen in love as though it was inevitable. I couldn't stop. We were, we were destined, right? It was out of my control. But here the language of the psalmist here that say the very same thing, that there's a sense in which you fall into what you love. You're a servant of it. And the psalmist invites us in this first stanza, stanza to consider what it would look like to love God and his word above all else. To where we would become its servants. We wouldn't delay in keeping his testimonies. We would turn our very ways and life toward it. Why? Because he is our portion. We can seek, we can praise, and we can obey the Lord because he's able to supply all our needs. Listen to the very first phrase, the Lord is my portion. Now, for many of you, you know, as you've been walking maybe in your reading plan through the, through the Old Testament, that one of the most important things that happened when God delivered his people from slavery and bondage in Egypt is that they gave them, he gave them the promised land. And that land was given to them in portions. That portions were, were divvied up amongst the tribes of Israel. And so this, langu- this language of apportion, apportionment was the language of having a home. The language of, I, I once was a slave, I once was a wanderer in the wilderness, but now I have a home. I was lost, but now I am found. Do, do you get it? And, and so in this sense, we're to recognize that the Lord... The the promise-keeping, delivering, redeeming God of the Bible is our home. He's all we ever need. Now, it's a beautiful language because I can even share with you, as I I told you, there's practical application for this, but this this is even visible in my own reading of the book of Numbers as I share with you. That's kind of where I'm walking through right now. And and one of the most beautiful pictures in in the book of Numbers is, and again, you have to kind of sift through the, the, the... the, and thus says the Lord, and, and, the, and the counting and the numbers and, the, and the, all the maths, right? But there's this beautiful picture of an apportionment to each of the tribes, save one. And you'll remember which one it was. The tribe of Levi. You see, the Levites were set aside as the priests. They were set aside to, to lead other people to celebrate and experience the covenant-keeping, redeeming work of the Lord. And their job was to to work on behalf of the people as intercessors, advocates, to to bring sacrifices for the people so that their sins might be atoned for, so that they would experience the presence of God himself. But the Levites were homeless. You see, in all the apportioned land of the promised land, the one tribe that was given no portion of land were the Levites. And the reason we find is that they were to be a living, breathing example that their home and refuge was not on the earth, but it was in God alone. 
And so the tithes of the people supported the work of uh, the, the work of the temple. Additional tithes supported the, the work and care for the poor and, 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 and the work and the care of the priests. And, and their tithes were meant to be a living, breathing example of how these Levites were dependent upon the generosity that was flowing from God through the people. They were a living, breathing example that apart from God, they were homeless. They were hungry and starving. If God didn't work, they were lost. And it's a beautiful picture, isn't it? That they were living, breathing examples that God was all they needed. We saw this last week and in the weeks before that that the psalmist tells us that we live as sojourners. That God's people are in many ways homeless wanderers in this earth. We don't really belong here. And that's why so many of us are, are, are discontent here. Because we were never made to be content in this life. We long for more. We saw even last week that in that sojourning, there's, a, there's something we'll be singing, right? A mixtape, if you will, of God's promise-keeping love. That at, while we're here wandering this planet, we know that God is going to redeem us. God is going to come back in Christ and make all things new. But we know of another Levite. We know of a good and better Levite. Jesus, for us, was the greatest Levite. A tenant, a steward who didn't belong here, who bore the scorn and affliction of many to demonstrate to you and to me the sufficiency of God as our refuge and strength, an ever-present need in time of trouble. The Levites reminded the people that they were simply tenants, stewards, and they had utter dependence that God was the portion. God was the apportionment of land. And so we have this stewardship of gratitude. We have a stewardship of thankfulness. Did you, did you hear that? We, we then promise to keep God's words. Because now, as Peter tells us, this new priesthood that lives in the apportionment of God's sufficiency is the church. You and I are now the kingdom of priests. We are the new intercessors. You, you and I don't need anyone, a priest, to intercede for us or advocate for us. Christ has advocated for us and brought us the Holy Spirit as another advocate. And you and I now have free access to God ourselves. And so therefore, we live as priests. And as such, we live in this world as homeless people. We don't feel quite at home. But even though we might experience affliction, and you saw the wicked trying to ensnare in verse 61, you saw in the other stanzas as well, the the sense in which they were under attack. While we may live in a difficult setting, we are never without a home. We have a home that is sure, and it is none other than the presence of God himself. So therefore, verse 58 says, since we know that, since we live in light of that, right? Here the, the, the psalmist in the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, right? I shall not be in want. I, I don't need anything else. He's enough. I don't need to be at home here. I have a portion that is the Lord. And so therefore, I, I entreat then your favor, literally your face. I love that. Like I entreat your face, the very face of God with all my heart. So now be gracious to me. And here's that phrase again, according to Be gracious to me, not according to the world, but according to you and your promise. Verse 59, he says that when he thinks then on his own ways, 
The New Testament language for his response is, I turn, that is, repent. When I think about myself rightly, when I think about who I really am and what I'm really like, I am inclined to turn toward the Father and towards his ways. And even though I'm under affliction, I love verse 62. This has been helpful for me. This is, I think there's multiple times in Psalm 119 where it speaks of the meditating upon God's word in the middle of the night. Now, it may be because of like I am advancing in age um, or may just be a whole lot of other reasons, but I regularly just wake up in the middle of the night. Just wake up in the middle of the night and can't go back to sleep. And years ago, before I, I had discovered Psalm 119, I, I, was, I was regularly frustrated by it. I was incredibly frustrated by it until I considered the possibility, and I would invite you to consider the possibility as well, that if you find yourself unable to sleep, did you hear what, did you hear what might be happening? It might be that you ate something you shouldn't have, right? <laughs> it might be that you have stress that you don't know what to do with. You can't turn your brain off. Maybe you didn't exercise, right? And so you're wired and still ready to go. But what the psalmist invites you and I to consider, is it possible that the Lord has awoken you to do what? To praise you. And to celebrate that his word is sufficient for us. You see this even in the the book of Nehemiah. That the beginning of a great move of God began with Nehemiah wandering around enemy territory in the middle of the night. So friend, is your sleeplessness an invitation by God to experience his presence. There's a little worship session that might be supposed to happen in that two hours, at least for me, that I can't go back to sleep. He says, The earth then, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Therefore, teach me your statutes. We live as aliens and sojourners in this life, but we are not without a home. He is all that we need. He himself is our portion. In adversity and even in sleepless nights. So ask yourself this, what would it look like for you to remember and celebrate that the Lord is sufficient? He's your portion. He's all you will ever need. If you use that language there in this this stanza, what is your apportionment? The psalmist wants to know about the plot of land on which you have staked your life. The psalmist wants you to reflect on what it is that you are resting on. Will it last affliction? Is it sufficient to give you the deepest satisfaction to the very longings of your heart? Because when you know that the God of all creation is your own very inheritance, it changes the way you live. Next stanza, beginning in verse 65. He reflects on something profound. That is the word good. That letter tet is the first letter in the word tov, which is good. And and that word good is found here six different times. And it begins five of the verses. Now in English, we've translated it differently, so it makes more sense to read. But it is to say that the word good is the emphasis of those those verses and then therefore the stanza. And, And it's meant to ask, what is good? Well, he answers. Verse 66, good apparently is something that God teaches. And then we find that good is who God is and what he does. And then the third thing we find out, and and this will mess you up in verse 71, it is good that we are afflicted. 
And then my favorite in verse 72, the law of your mouth is better, quite literally, gooder, more good than any riches we could experience. So think about the countercultural nature of what is good here for the psalmist and what you and I think is good. In the end, good is what the Lord teaches us. Good is who God is and what he does. But then the third thing, good is when we are afflicted. (laughs) Often we understand goodness and even goodness of God towards us in terms of prosperity, of joyfulness and happiness. But what we find here, evidently, it is actually good for the psalmist here that he was afflicted. Verse 67, he says, before he was afflicted, right? So evidently there was this period of time of affliction, and before it, what was it that the psalmist was doing? He was going astray. But, as if to say, now, now that I have been afflicted, now that I have gone through suffering of some sort, now I actually hold fast to your word. Now I'm in communion with you. Now I'm hearing you speak. And what the psalmist presents to us is that goodness as God is good toward us, is only seen often through adversity and difficult circumstances. Here's what I'll say in light of the psalmist just briefly. We let God define the term good rather than the term good defining God. One of my favorite theologians of the 20th century, Karl Barth, as he reflects on some of these things, says that one does not say God by simply saying man in a loud voice. You hear what he's saying? He's saying you don't get to God by just taking the attributes that are noteworthy in humanity and simply amp them up and ascribe them to God. That will never get you to God. Your highest ideals are still infinitely short of what God is like. The best possible understanding of love that you can think up of is, is still infinitely short of the love of God. And in this case, the best, like, the, you know, good, the gooderest, right? The more good, the most good, the goodest possible thing you could think of is infinitely short of the goodness of God. Your best thoughts, your best ideas of goodness still don't come close. That's why God is holy. He's set apart from us, and he's set apart from your goodness. Your best idea of good, better, and best is still infinitely short of the goodness of God. And so for us to understand goodness in light of God, rather than trying to figure out God in light of what we think is good, because you know this, we think a lot of awful things are good, don't we? Like we laugh at and are entertained by things that are grotesque and awful. Ask yourself this, how often do like, things go viral that are good? And so now, in light of God's revelation to us and a reflection on what is good, we begin to understand what is good, better, and best in light of what we know to be true about God. Namely, that all good things come from Him. James has told us, James has told us this as we were walking through it weeks ago. Every good and perfect gift comes from Him. And so therefore, we understand good in light, him, in light of Him. And then the most profound thing will happen. When you understand what is good based on who God is, it will radically turn around your understanding of the world such that you would even say, Hear that radical statement. It is good for me that I was afflicted. I know, I know so many of you right now would probably identify with that word. Like if I was like, hey, are you afflicted? You feel like you're afflicted right now? I know many of you would be like, yes. Right, I have affliction. Are you burdened? I know so many of you, if you're like me, you're just weary. 
You're frustrated. You're disillusioned. I know many of you, you're walking through seasons of, of difficulty in your life. I know right now you're, you're living in a season of disappointment. I know that's true for you. And all I want to ask you in light of the psalmist here is, what would it take for you to think that all of that affliction, all of that, all of that trouble is actually good? It'd take something radical, wouldn't it? Right? It'd take something radical to look at the awfulness in your life and in the world and go, it's not bad. It would take something amazing, wouldn't it? It would have to be something so bright that it absolutely dispels all the darkness in your life. It would have to be something so overwhelmingly amazing and righteous and pure that it would begin to distract us and dispel the distress that you and I experience regularly and what we see in the world, wouldn't it? It would have to be an overwhelming kind of good for us to think that this intolerable suffering that you and I experience in this thing called life is actually good. Something amazing and unbelievable would have to happen to turn this story into something that's good, wouldn't it? Notice, for the psalmist, he knows that that's something that God is capable of doing. And I want to invite you to encourage you in whatever affliction and sorrow you currently carry, did you know there is a God who is capable of turning this wretched story into a story of victory? Did you know that? There is a God that is currently using all the mess of your life and mine to tell a story that will be sung of forever and ever. That God has turned that which is broken and dead and lifeless and brought, out, uh, brought about something beautiful and eternal. That affliction that you and I experience is simply the canvas upon which God is painting a beautiful masterpiece. And so therefore for us, when we recognize that, a few things happen. One, we realize affliction is never punishment. Affliction is never punishment for the Christian. Why? Because the greatest affliction that was ever carried by any human was carried to the cross by Jesus. The most innocent and righteous man that ever walked the face of the planet was betrayed, abandoned, left naked, hung to die of exposure. And yet we celebrate that thing as Good Friday. How could that be possible? And since we know that the greatest affliction was carried, our greatest sorrow was carried, our greatest burdens were carried by Jesus, we know that whatever affliction we experience isn't punished. It's not punishment. It's not wrath. Instead, it's simply the context in which we'll experience God's grace. And I can affirm, maybe your affliction is incredibly awful. His grace is incredibly sufficient. Also, affliction that is never wasted. I know that in the moments of your deepest sorrows and disappointments, it feels like a waste. It feels like your life has no meaning. It's not what I wanted. It's not what I was after. But friend, if the cross of Jesus Christ can be used as a tool for the redemption of every tribe, tongue, and, lang and language, then, then there's no telling what God could do with your mess. There's no telling what, what story God is telling through your mess. There's no telling. It's not wasted. It is not wasted. And as you cry out to God in the midst of that sorrow and despair, 
Be comforted. He hears. He actually hears you. He won't leave you there. I promise. And just as the Christian can declare that Jesus Christ was not abandoned to the tomb, so also I can share to you that in Christ, you and I are not abandoned to our sorrow and affliction. We're not being punished. Jesus took all of our punishment for us. And it's not a waste. The God who can use the symbol of torture, the old rugged cross, to bring salvation to many can use your story and mine to bring glory to himself and joy to you and me. Verse 73 says, Your hands have made and fashioned me. Now you see this throughout the Psalms. This is a reflection and a meditation of what Christians would call the image of God. We believe that we are image bearers. We carry the imago Dei. We are created by God. There are fingerprints on every human. And so there's a a particular place in, in the heart of a Christian that breaks when we see suffering and justice and sorrow. We see the value of human beings. And so that is our cause. We, we look at all suffering. We don't pick, but we look at all suffering and we say, look, God has done something here in the same way that God has fashioned me. We just celebrated that, right, with these little children. If God has fashioned these little ones and fashioned me, then we understand that God has fashioned all people. They have infinite dignity. They're not worthless to be thrown off. So therefore, he says, now give me understanding in light of that. Give me deeper understanding in light of the fact that you have created life such that even those who fear you will see me and rejoice. Now, there's a couple times you see this, right? Like, it is good for me, he says, that I was afflicted. And he, he relates to some of the people who are, who are kind of like walking around in his, his affliction. But if you look all the way back to verse 63, the theme kind of carries through. He says, I am a companion of all who fear you, says verse 63. And then he says again, verse 74, those who fear you shall see me and rejoice. So you you get this picture of the, the community that is created by those who fear and know the Lord. And friend, that's who we are. That's what the church of Jesus Christ is. The people who they fear God, right? Think of us like reciting this together. You fear God, you know his mercy, and so you can look at me in spite of all my flaws and failures and still rejoice. Like, God welcomes sinners. And every morning I stand up here and go like, proof, right? Like, there's that one. Well, if God loves that one, well, okay, there's, there's hope for the rest of us. You see what he's saying? We're, we're like a trophy of his grace. We, we gather together and rejoice in the work of God's grace in one another. Don't you love that? Those who fear you, like we've encountered God and experienced his grace. And so therefore we see the grace evident in other, the lives of others around us. And we go, that's amazing. I know, Lord, that your rules are righteous. And then and it gets even, he, he kind of lays out a gauntlet again. And that in faithfulness, you have afflicted me. Do you hear that language again? That God is doing something. So then let those who fear you, here's the language of community again, again, turn to me that they may know your testimonies. Do you hear the language of the mission of this covenant people? Our purpose as a church is to testify to the goodness of God such that people would see us, marvel that God would use people like us, see the power of, of transformation and the power of the Holy Spirit at work and you and me, and then they, as a result, would celebrate the goodness of God. They then, verse 79 say, says, would know your testimonies. So we were made, created, fashioned in the first verse there, in the stanza, 
inviting others to experience it as well, to know the Lord as creator, but also as teacher. People will know you and and understand you, and then they will be taught about about who God is, his testimonies, that his word for us is sufficient. Here's the last part, verse 81. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise, and I ask, when will you comfort me? Just like we learned a few weeks ago or months ago as we walked through the book of Lamentation, we are invited to cry out to God for help. It's okay to tell God, when, when are you going to fix this? It's okay. In fact, it's, we're invited to be deeply dissatisfied in the suffering and strife of the world. We're not meant to make friends with it. Instead, we're meant to long for the comforter to come and make all things new. And so this is what I think we learn in all of this. It says, your commandments are sure, but in your steadfast love, verse 88, give me life that I may keep your testimonies of your mouth. Do you hear the picture of the gospel? The life-changing work of God precedes obedience. In your steadfast love, give me life. That, in order that, functionally it's a sequential, that I then may keep the testimonies of your mouth. This is so important for so many of you to hear. This is incredibly important if maybe if you were raised in a religious background and maybe religiosity has defined your own story. If religiosity has defined your story, you get that verse backwards, don't you? Right? I'm going to keep all the testimonies, I'm going to keep all the rules, and then God's going to love me. I'm going to do all the good, and then God's going to love me. And notice the gospel reminder that, that we find here in 119 and verse 88. No, 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 no. God loves you. Now you're free to walk in his ways. Now you're free to experience this with him. And look, in the midst of any anguish, we can depend upon the Lord and his word to us to get us through. What the Lord says to us, for Christians in Christ, the word of redemption and restoration, the word of new life, the word of delight. Did you hear that language? The, 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 the word of wisdom and of mercy that comes over us. The word of shamelessness, of truth. The word of even fearlessness. That word comes to us, and it's what gets us through. You and I have experienced this life-changing word, and so now, therefore, we walk in his ways. So very briefly, a reflection on why I think this is a particularly important chapter for our church to reflect upon. It's this simply. Maturity equals obedience. That's it. I mean, it's, this isn't flashy. I told you this is, not, this is not exciting. This might be the most boring thing, right? If you were like, hey, how was your day? And you were like, I, lived in obe- I had an obedient day, right? What'd you do today? I obeyed the Father, right? No one, no one would be like, that's amazing. Unless they also knew the depths of our own sin. <laughs> right? Like, what'd you do today? I, ob- I obeyed God completely today, right? Anybody who knows their own sin would be like, you did the whole day? Like the whole thing. Like, like even when people cut you off and like the whole thing. Yes, the whole thing. And you begin to realize the mystery of being in Christ shaped to look more and more like him. We become more and more obedient. In this sense, my hope is like Psalm 119 helps us as a church to make obedience cool again, Right? 
We're ob- like, right, how mundane or boring. Hey, you know, tell me about Connection Church. Very, very obedient people. Very obedient. Like, <laughs> and I want you to know, as, as like unflashy and unsexy as that might be, there can be no deeper and greater prayer and longing for us. Now, you have to see obedience rightly, though. You see, the obedience to a slave master is different than the obedience to a father, isn't it? Right? The, the obedience to a slave master who, who gets it backwards in verse 88, who says, obey or else, is much different than the obedience to a father who says, come in for dinner. Come in where it's warm, right? The obedience to a slave master who always holds out his love, contingently, who always holds out his acceptance, is different than the love of a father who sends his own son to demonstrate his love from the, for the wayward and wandering children. A quote from the Anabaptists has been helpful for me. It's a, kind of an anonymous quote held by the Anabaptists from centuries ago. Theological brilliance is no substitute for faithful obedience. You could... The person who obeys one verse in the Bible is more important than the person who, who memorizes the whole Bible. And my hope for you is that you would live by and walk in God's ways and what he reveals to you. That yes, you would grow in understanding, but I hope that as you grow in understanding, you also grow in maturity. I would rather you be able to obey God's word and follow it and walk in his steps than to, than to recite it. In fact, that's one of the scariest things for many of you. You don't really want to learn. You don't really want to read the Bible and learn what it says because you're scared of what you might be accountable for at that point. You'd rather avoid it. Like, I'd rather not know. I like not thinking about that. But what we find here is that the beauty that God holds out to us is a countercultural beauty. It's the obedience. The obedience of a child. Think of the, the ways, right? The precepts, the statutes as a father who invites his child for a walk. Right, many of you, you see obedience, you see laws, you see commands and statutes of God as things that are like, don't tell me what to do, right? Don't, don't restrain me. But, but notice what the psalmist says. He says, look, there's, there's an accusation over here. There's strife over here. There's, there's despair over here. There's right, trouble and affliction over here. But if you will just follow me, walk in my footsteps, I'll walk you all the way through it. Obedience, friends, isn't something that the slave master wants to hold you down with. Obedience is something God offers us to get us through the mess. And so you and I can know that since the Lord is sufficient, no affliction can separate us from the hope that we have in his good word. What he says to us is true, and what he says to us will get us through. I love the picture of the last stanza here. Isn't it the picture of Christ suffering on our behalf? Doesn't it sound, my soul longs, my eyes long, I become like wineskin in the smoke. I love, what a great picture, right? It's like, it's all, you dry wineskin in the rafters, in the, in the roof so that it will dry out so you can then, then prepare the wineskin to make wine. I love the a picture that's like, man, I'm like a burnt up wineskin. And you're like, well, that sounds, that sounds awful now, but man, you know, I don't know, I don't know how long it takes to make wine, but then it's like, but that's going to be cool later, isn't it? Right? Like, How, must, how long must I endure? They've dug pits for me. They persecute me. And they've made an end of me. But your steadfast love gives me life. Isn't that a picture of what Christ has done for us? Isn't that a picture of what we now have in Christ? I love verse 80. 
because now of the blamelessness of God's word for us, we are not put to shame. What's our comfort in the middle of affliction? How can we avoid despair? It's that in Christ, the verdict and the sentence and the final judgment day has already come and gone. And do you know what the sentence and the verdict and, and do, do you know what the ruling is over your life and mine? There's no condemnation. And so, friend, in the midst of pain, in the midst of sorrow, we can begin to experience the refining work of this world, knowing that we were created for another world. We can begin to experience freedom more and more from sin and more and more from shame. And we can trust in that God has a plan for us that affliction will not stop. Affliction will not quit what God is doing. Let me give you a crash course on Reformed theology before I wrap up. This is kind of a, 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 a tribe or a camp of, of conviction for our church, and I want you to know what we believe in. And it's simply this, that we believe in the sovereignty of God in saving sinners and redeeming people. We believe that God is sovereign to save his people. He's going, he made his promise to do it. He came in Christ and completed it. And we believe there's nothing that's going to stop him. And he's sovereign over everything. He is sovereign to save sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, through Jesus Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, revealed in the scripture alone. That, that's what we believe. And so what it means is that there is no affliction that can stop that. There is nothing that anyone can do to stop that. Now, that's especially pertinent and relevant for us. If nothing can stop his good, not even affliction, just think about that. If you meditate like this, right? If you meditated on that every single day, can you imagine what you might look like? <laughs> Here's, this will mess you up. If you had meditated that on that truth every single day over the last year and a half, can you imagine what you might have looked like? Hasn't that been the power of the last year and a half? Haven't you been able to see kind of the people meditating on the affliction and those meditating on the goodness of God in the midst of affliction? Friend, we are not simply sheep being led to the slaughter. Because of Christ and his work even through the cross and through any affliction, we are more than conquerors. The psalmist sings about what you and I have received in Christ. He speaks about the hope that comes from the promises of God. And you and I have seen in Christ the hope that comes from those promises being kept. He speaks about the hope being held out by the Father. And you and I get to sing about the hope we have received in Christ. Don't let any fear monger or cynic talk you out of that. There is no affliction that can separate the love of God for you and for me in Christ. And that, my friend, is the hope that gets us through affliction. It's the hope that allows us, even as Christ was raised from the dead, to be caught up in a resurrection that we can't even imagine. Let's thank God for his victory over all things in Christ. God, we thank you so much for your goodness towards us in Christ. Uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not abandoned us or forsaken us, but instead you have come to be with us and for us. We thank you that you are not a stranger to us, but instead you are one who reveals and introduces himself to us in Christ. I pray even now for those in this room, maybe this is, this is an absurd thing to hear. Might, might even now they begin to reflect upon the possibility that what they have previously thought is good is far, far too uh, it, it, it just doesn't even measure up to the goodness that you show us in Christ. Might today we have a new understanding of what is good. That the Good Friday that 
that you use to bring about the Resurrection Sunday is the same kind of good that we are meant to experience in the middle of despair. I pray right now if there's someone in this room in the middle of suffering, in the middle of affliction, God, would you even now, would you comfort them? Would you speak words of affirmation, words of acceptance like only you can? Revive them with the trust that you'll carry them through. You won't abandon them or forsake them. You'll invite them to walk in your footsteps all the way through. I thank you that this promise that the psalmist holds out to us for hope in the middle of affliction is visible and acceptable for us in Christ. Might we look to him, bring glory to him, that he who overcame the grave and was resurrected on Easter Sunday invites us to experience by the power of the Holy Spirit that victory now as more than conquerors, freed from condemnation, children of the living God. Make that truth alive and well in us by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.